0: All right, guys, we are going to take a look at the first half of Nehemiah chapter 4, so grab your Bibles, let's jump into this, and I'm going to pray as you open to there. God, we want to hear from you, that's it. We believe that you are here, that you, that you love us, that you've called us into your kingdom. I pray for every student here, Lord, none is too young to be radically captured by you, to be radically used by you to find life and hope in you. And God, I I pray and hope that they would leave today with a sense of calling, of purpose. Uh, Lord, that their life is not a random accident, but it's authored by you. It is here. They are here for a purpose, a reason that you have set forth for them. And even though there is going to be difficulty and trials and attacks... Lord, we can cling to you and find our hope. And we're going to learn that today. So I pray, Lord, that you help all of our hearts be attentive, all of our ears be attentive, our minds be ready to receive from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So you guys have been going through this amazing book, Nehemiah. It's got to be one of my favorite books studying because it's really a book about leadership. Nehemiah was a leader. And it's a book about building. It's a book about taking on a calling from God and accomplishing that calling even in the face of difficulty and in the face of opposition. And, you know, the Bible is is amazing in that the Old Testament are not just a bunch of boring stories that we have to learn in Sunday school and they have no purpose or relevance to our life, just a bunch of antiquated tales of people past who have done kind of crazy things. No, the Bible... We read these stories of history that actually spiritually still apply to your life and my life today. And so we see that right here in the book of Nehemiah, where there was this guy serving the king at Babylon, and he was a cupbearer, and he was going about his business until one day he receives news from one of his brothers, his Jewish brothers, who just came back from Jerusalem, which had been destroyed and ransacked by the Babylonians. And they had gone back and started rebuilding the temple, but Nehemiah wants to know what's going on at home, what's going on with our people. And so he asks, what's the state state of Jerusalem? And he hears some news that's not so encouraging. He hears him tell him, hey, we just came back from Jerusalem and it's a mess, The walls are in shambles. Our our father's graves are being trampled on and it's it's horrible. And all of a sudden, chapter one, Nehemiah gets something that every single person needs if they're going to do something for God. And that's a burden. A burden, not, I don't mean like, oh, what a burden, what a headache, what a trouble. No, I mean something that Nehemiah's heart felt the same way about this work that God's heart felt he began to weep, he began to think, man, my people need help, we need to be rebuilding these walls, there are people who are dying, and I want to be part of the solution, and can I just make a note before we even get into chapter 4, that, in, that every Christian needs a burden from God to be part of a solution to a problem that God wants to fix, you might know, so what does it look like to get a burden from God? What it looks like is this, when you start to see something around you the same way that God sees it, that's called a burden. I remember when I was your age, I was probably 13 years old, and I was sitting in a worship service watching the guy lead worship, and all of a sudden, I started thinking, I would love to be part of helping people worship God. So I grabbed the guitar and I started learning it. And I started learning how to sing, kind of. And people put up with me. And, and, and I started just, why? Because I started to see what God saw. And everyone in here, I want you to ask yourself, is there something in my life that I see the same way as God sees it? When I go to school and I see people, friends, who don't know Jesus and who might stand before God and who might have to be punished for their sins because they've not trusted in Christ, do I have a heart that says, oh man, I want them to know the Lord like I know the Lord. That's a burden. Do I go to youth group and say, man, that person over there looks lonely. They look like they're new. I sure hope I could be someone to show them some love or some kindness. I think that's what God would want. That's called a burden. And if you don't have a burden from God, you will go through your life just living for your own dreams, desires, your own path, and you'll miss out on something special God wants to do through your life specifically. And if you don't have a burden from God, I want you to ask God, God, give me a burden. Break my heart for something that breaks your heart. Help me see something that you see that I wouldn't see on my own. Show me how I can be part of that solution. And that's exactly what happens to Nehemiah in chapter one. And then in chapter two, he's He has to kind of go through this process of getting things in place before his vision can come to pass. And of course, things don't happen overnight when we're serving the Lord. Sometimes God has to take us through a process of learning and growing before we get to the point of seeing that burden fulfilled or that, uh, you know, being able to meet that need. He finally gets to Jerusalem. He scopes out the work and he gathers and he rallies in chapter three, all God's people to the job, to the task. And you guys learned even probably last week in chapter three, that in order for something to be done for God, it takes more than just one person doing their part. It takes everyone doing their part. Like a body working together, hands, feet, toes, armpits, hair, you know, tongues, whatever it is, everything has to be working together to make the body work. Same way with the church. Well, in chapter four, we come to this place where the the people start working, the vision's coming to pass, all the resources are coming together, like everyone's soaked. Yeah, we're finally doing what God's called us to do. And what happens immediately, as soon as they start walking in obedience to God, the enemies of Israel come and begin to attack. But not attack with swords and spears and weapons. No, they attack in three ways that I hope to cover. Well, I'm only going to get a cover two today because we're not going to make it through the whole chapter. But here's the reality. For us spiritually, I challenge you. Go ahead and say, yes, Jesus, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Wherever you want me to go, I'll go. Whoever you want me to talk to, I'll talk to. And just watch as you begin to experience spiritual warfare in your life. Because every one of us who know Jesus and who are Christians have an adversary, just another way of saying, an enemy who is spiritual and unseen. And our enemy's name is Satan. Satan, we often learn about him, but oftentimes we don't uh, come to the reality that he is real and demons are real. And they are actually against the Christian who wants to do something for the Lord. I'm not trying to scare you. The enemy would like you scared as we're going to see today, but it is a reality. And I know some of you are thinking, "Man, Josh, like I'm 13, I'm 14 years old. I want to think about looking at Instagram and playing video games and hanging out with my friends. I don't want to think about Satan and war and battles." Well, I got I got tough news for you. It doesn't matter if you want to think about it or not. This is reality. A person who sits in the middle of a battlefield with their eyes closed and their ears plugged is a foolish person. And you guys, we are in a battle for our souls. God is wanting to do things through us. The enemy is trying to stop the work of God through us. And we're in warfare. You see, in Nehemiah chapter 4, we learn that you cannot separate building from battles or worship from warfare. These things are intertwined. The minute you start building for God, you're going to get engaged in spiritual warfare. The minute you start worshiping the Lord, you're going to get engaged in spiritual warfare. So it's essential for us to know how the enemy works, lest he take advantage of us. We need to be aware of his tactics, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians, or his devices, the things he uses against us. And so here we jump in. Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 1. The first thing we see is the intimidation of the enemy. The intimidation of the enemy. I don't know if any of you guys have ever been intimidated by someone or something. It's it's a moment of like where you're in a situation and all of a sudden you feel uncertain about yourself because of what someone says about you or what someone does to you or you're facing a, a thing and you don't know if you can do it. And so you're, you're intimidated at that moment. You're a little scared. I know I've felt like this many moments, many times in my life where I've looked at something that's bigger than me or people have attacked me and I'm kind of like, I don't know if I could do this. I don't know if I can move forward. When I was in high school, I had a, uh, I had a really bad lisp um, when I spoke. I was kind of a loner and in junior high and high school, all my S's sounded like this. I spoke like this, and it was really bad. And there were three guys who super, you know, I guess they thought they were something special, but three guys in high school who decided that every time they saw me, they were going to give me a little nickname. So my nickname was Donkey Lips. That was my nickname. I would walk around school, and I'd see these three guys and say, Hey, Donkey Lips, how you doing? They'd make fun of me. And I just remember feeling so intimidated, feeling so out of place. Like I could never fit in. I could never have friends. I could never be what everyone else was because I had this thing that, that was different, that made me some sort of failure or some sort of mistake. And it was a small thing in the scheme of things. You know, what's really cool about that story, on a side note, 10 years ago or around 10 years ago, I saw that guy when I was visiting here. I saw him at this church and I saw him from a distance and I went up to him and he said, oh, <laughs> and when we, we were talking a little bit, catching up, and he said, well, I'm, I'm a Christian now. I've come to the Lord and I was a mess in high school and I called you that name and I'm sorry. He remembered and he ended up apologizing and all this sort of thing, but it's, uh, it's this intimidation that the enemy always tries to point out some insecurity that we have about ourselves, And this is what he does. Look at verse 1, chapter 4. But it so happened, and of course there's always a but in between God's work and the enemy's attack. But it so happened when Sanbalt Sanballat was a Horonite, Horon, Horon was a, a, a local deity, a local god. So he was one of the enemies of Israel. He was one of the leaders of the enemies of Israel. He heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant, and he mocked the Jews. In this chapter, we're introduced to two big bullies, two guys that are going to mock and jeer and create confusion in Israel. Why? Because they're angry. This is the land that they want for themselves. They want this territory. They want their own, they have their own agenda. And Israel is now here rebuilding their city and they're getting in the way. They don't want them to succeed. They want them to fail. Why? Because if they succeed, it's going to be bad news for them. And you guys, in the same way, the enemy, our enemy, Satan, wants us to fail. When he sees you by faith, I'm going I'm to reach that person. I'm going to serve in that ministry. I'm going to pray. I'm going to dig into worship. I'm going to get into the word of God. I'm going to discover God's purpose for my life. The enemy sees a threat to everything he wants to accomplish in, the, in, in this territory, in this world, in this city, in your family, in your group of friends, at your school. And he gets angry that that's happening. And so what's he going to do? He's going to come try to intimidate you. When I think of these two enemies, Ballot is one, and Tobiah is the other. And Tobiah is like this little punk. You know, you know, you have the bullies, right? And there's like the big bully, and then there's a little punk behind him who like pops out his head and says something, and like runs back. In fact, this is gonna date me a lot. Have you guys seen this? Okay. This is, these guys remind me of the bullies. So that's who I think of when I think of Sanballat and Tobiah. Yeah, it's kind of geeky. I get it. But that's back in the day. But anyway, these two guys are going to lay it on now. And now they're going to start mocking. They're going to mock the people of God. You know, it's been said that some people can stand bravely when they're shot at, but they'll collapse when they're laughed at. I mean, who likes being laughed at, right? Who likes being mocked in public in front of everyone? And that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 2. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria. So Sanballat is going to mock the Jews, but he's not going to just do it in private. He's going to do it in front of everyone, in front of the army and in front of all the family members and in front of all the people. So they all get intimidated by this threat. And here's what he said in verse two. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? In this one verse, the enemy attacks the Jews on six different levels. You're like, six things in that one verse? Yeah, six things in one sentence. He attacks six things. And you know what I found? The enemy attacks us in these same six ways. Notice the first thing is he attacks the Jews' lack of strength. He says, look at these feeble Jews. Underline that word in your Bible. These feeble Jews. The word feeble means to literally be, literally be trembling, to be without strength, incapable of doing the job. Oh, you guys, you're gonna rebuild a wall. You can't even you know, build a house. You are weak. You don't have tools. You don't have weapons. You don't have artisans and craftsmen and builders. You're just a bunch of refugees with a bunch of sticks and, you know, pitchforks, and you guys are going to rebuild the wall, you feeble Jews. In other words, this is the attack. You can't do anything for God because you don't have what it takes. You are weak. Only strong people succeed. Only good-looking people. Only, Only brave, you know, Fluent people succeed and you're too weak. And here's the, the thing about this attack is it's actually true. The Bible makes it clear. We are all weak. We all have weakness when it comes to our usefulness to God. But as a Christian, here's the beautiful thing about knowing Jesus. When the enemy says you are too feeble you're too weak, you're too ugly, you don't have what it takes, you can't do something for God and all your insecurities start welling up, you know what you can say because of Jesus? You can say, you know what? You're right, I am too weak but I have a savior who is strong on my behalf. I have a God who makes his strength perfect in my weakness. I have a God who takes all my weaknesses and puts them together, and then he comes and fills in all the gaps with his strength. And I don't need to be strong in order to do something for God, because God is strong for me. You see, knowing Jesus is not about being good enough. It's about recognizing that he is good enough and that you're not. And when you get okay with that, all of a sudden, there's a lot of stuff that happens with you in your own identity, a lot of confidence you get in not yourself, but in God. And that's exactly, he thinks, I'm going to intimidate them, but they said, you know, they're here saying, it's okay, we can be weak, we can be feeble, and that's okay, because God's the one who's going to do it. He's the one who's going to make it possible, not us. The second thing he attacks is their defenses. Notice he says, will they fortify themselves? Are they going to build up a wall to defend themselves against the enemy? And here's the the factor. He's intimidating them how? He's trying to make them afraid. He's trying to say, hey, we have armies. We have weapons. You guys are actually going to build up a wall for what reason? It's pointless because you're going to build the wall up. And guess what? We're going to come attack it and break it down. So why build it in the first place? There's no point. Why should you fortify yourselves? And you're thinking, maybe, Josh... How does this apply to us? Well, think about it. Little pop quiz question. Raise your hands, even though it might be tough. Who in here has at some point felt convicted by the Holy Spirit because you've failed, you've sinned, you've made a mistake, and you know you have? And, you've made, and you feel like, man, I really made a mistake, and maybe you've even done it more than once. Raise your hand if that's you. Okay, I hope you all are raising your hands because that's all of us. Okay, put your hand down. Now, when that's happened to you, tell me, have you ever heard this voice? You make a mistake, right? You're gossiping about one of your friends, you hurt their feelings. Your, your parents said, here's some boundaries for you, and you purposely break them. You cheat, you're cheating on a test, you're doing something at school, you know you're, you're involved in a conversation or a relationship or something that's ungodly, unprofitable, and you're feeling convicted about it, and you know you fail, and you feel bad about it. How many of you have heard this voice? Why don't you just give up? Why, why even try? Why, why should you even repent? Why don't you just keep doing it? You're never going to succeed. You're just going to do it again, and again, and again, and you're just going to keep messing. You know, why do you even try? How many of you guys have ever heard that voice before? Ever felt like, what's the point? Okay, me too. Let me tell you what that voice is that voice is Satan saying, why should you fortify yourself? Why should you build up a wall against that temptation? Why should you keep trusting the Lord, keep praying, keep resisting, keep fighting? I'm just going to come in and I'm just going to beat you again. And that is a flat out lie. He wants you to surrender so that you won't be successful In overcoming. But here's what the Bible says, that there's no weapon that's formed against you that can prosper. There's nothing the enemy that can do that can have more authority or power in your life than what Jesus has done on the cross. And you keep fighting. You keep resisting. The Bible says this, cling to God, resist the devil, and he will what? Anyone know? Flee from you. Keep building the wall. Keep fortifying yourself. Keep repenting. Keep getting back up. Keep going after Christ. And you know what's going to happen over time? You're going to find that you're having victory over the enemy. You're having victory over the flesh and that you're overcoming temptation. Don't give in to that lie, you guys. Oh, why should you fortify yourself? Why build the wall anyway? Who cares? It's a lie. The next thing that the enemy attacks is that he attacks their motivation, He says, will they build it for themselves? In other words, many times when we go to do something for God, the enemy will do this to us. Oh, you're not doing that for God. You're just doing that for yourself. You just want to lead worship so everyone can see you sing and tell you how great a voice you have. You just want to go serve so people can see you. And unfortunately, sometimes that's true too. But here's the thing. If your heart's pure and you know, God, I'm nothing, you're everything, but I really want to do this for you, the enemy would like to, Make you think, like, oh, you can't do that. You're just doing it for yourself. You say, No, I'm doing it for Jesus. And I'm not only going to do it for Jesus, but I'm going to do it all out for Jesus. I'm going to give everything I have, every ounce of energy, every resource I have available so that God can be glorified in my life. Next, he attacks their worship. He says, Will they worship and make sacrifices? What's this about? Well, here are the people. Imagine they're building, they're building, and all of a sudden they stop building on the Sabbath day, and they go to the temple and they worship and they worship. They're bringing sacrifices to the altar. The enemy's like, how are you guys going to accomplish the task if you te- keep taking breaks to go worship God, to go give him sacrifices? What good is it doing you? Look at you've been in Babylon for seventy years. You guys are. are where's your God? What's your God done for you? That you keep worshiping him as though he's gonna do something miraculous. What a waste of time. And I found this, that the enemy likes to attack our fellowship with God, our pursuit of Christ in prayer and in worship. You guys, the best thing any of us can do when we're trying to serve the Lord is to take those times to be engaged in worshiping and praying to the Lord. But how many maybe of you have felt this? You're in church, the guy's playing the piano, playing the guitar, singing worship, and you're looking at maybe some kid like raising their hands, one of the leaders is raising their hands and singing and you're kind of standing there and you feel this. This is so pointless. Why are we doing this? Like this, uh, raising our hands, closing our eyes, singing into the air, this seems kind of silly. Why do I, I, why pray? I mean, last time I prayed, nothing happened and this just all seems kind of dumb, I won't make you raise your hands, but maybe some of you would admit I felt that way before. I found myself in the middle of worship going, why am I doing this? Why? Because the enemy doesn't want us to worship. He doesn't want us to prioritize God in our life. He doesn't want us to pray. Why? Because those are the weapons of warfare that come against his kingdom. It's always appropriate to take time to worship the Lord. And it's something we must do. But he attacks it. He attacks their worship. And the next thing he attacks is their progress or their speed. At the beginning of the work, it seems like this wall is going to take them forever to build. <laughs> All right, you got a bunch of people who don't know what they're doing. I want you to imagine. Let's say, we, let's say we took this group. Okay? Think of it this way. Let's say there was a big earthquake. Right now, Southern California. 8.0. Shaker. And the west wing of the church goes down, It crumbles. And so the next week, we're like, junior high ministry. We get all you guys, we break you up into little groups, like, we're going to go rebuild the the west wing. What what are you guys thinking right now? Like, that's about the most stupidest idea I've ever heard in my life, right? (laughs) That is almost what the Jews were facing, And so they start sorting through the rubble. They're putting bricks on top of bricks and stones on top of stones. And it's taking forever. And the enemy is like, what, do you think you're just going to come in here and just like, it's just going to build itself? You should just stop. I mean, you should stop this. It's beyond you. It's going to take you forever. Is anyone else in here like me that you get discouraged in doing something if you know it's going to take you forever? Some people like it. Some people are like, yeah, I'm in it for the long haul. I'm like, that's going to take me forever. I think I'll, I think I'll just like hire someone else to do it. Or I don't think, I, I just forget it. Like, I'm not going to do that. It's going to take forever. This is what he's trying to do. But here's what I've learned in following the Lord now. I've been in ministry for 16 years. Um, God works in a moment. And God works over time. And you can't escape the process of patience and waiting on the Lord. But when you're willing to stay consistent and be patient and let the Lord have his way in your life, the things that he promised will come to pass. And here is the amazing thing. They could have never seen it when they started. They would have never known it. But does anyone know how long it took them to build the entire wall around Jerusalem, to complete it. No gaps. 52 days. That is a miracle. (laughs) That is a miracle of God. And so, be careful there. Do what's in front of you today. Don't worry, Jesus said about tomorrow, but do what's in front of you today. And then finally, he attacks their lack of resources. Notice the very end, he says, will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish? stones that are burned. In other words, you guys don't even have, you don't even have the resources you need to build the wall. All the stones you have have been burnt and broken down. They're not even, they don't even fit together. Like, are you going to build a wall out of a heap of rubble? You don't have the right tools. And how many times have we felt this? Like, we want to do something for God, but God, I can't sing. God, I can't preach. And God, I'm not very uh, popular. God, I don't know if I have the courage. I don't know if I could speak to someone, God. And we lay out, just like Moses did at the burning bush, all the excuses as to why God can't use us. I'm too young. That's been an excuse. I can't speak good. That's been an excuse. I don't have any talents. That's been an excuse. And it's all baloney. It's all a lie. God created you, you, he didn't create you someone else. He didn't create you to be like someone else. He created you to pursue Christ and in doing so, he equips you and gives you all the gifts and talents you need to do what you have been called to do. The most freeing thing, if I'm still got some of you guys, the most freeing thing for me, when I was going through a bunch of like insecurities and identity issues, I'm, I am naturally a very insecure person and I take criticism hard. I take people making fun of me hard. I take people criticizing something I do. That wasn't very good. I take it hard. It's just, it's just my insecurity. And the most freeing thing that ever happened to me was when God says, Josh, I, I made you who you are. I know who you are. When are you going to be okay with who you are? When are you going to be okay that you don't have to be like so-and-so and and look like so-and-so and and have the talents of so-and-so for me to effectively do what I want to do in you? It was like life-changing for me. And in that surrender, you start to see God developing things in you that you never thought you had, that you never thought you could do things, and yet it all just starts by putting what you have in the hands of God. Moses had a staff. David had a sling and a few stones. The boy had a little, couple loaves of bread and a few fish. Jesus fed thousands. God takes what you have and uses it. Say, God, what do you have? What do I have? Well, I, I kind of like, like to be nice to people. So God, can I just, can you show me someone today who's lonely that I can be nice to? That's it. Here's what I have. God, it's, it belongs to you. Watch. Watch who he brings in your path. God, I like, I like working with computers. I, I feel like I can build a computer and like do technical things. Can, you, can I use that somehow for you? Just watch. Just start putting what you have in the hands of God and stop listening to that. Well, you don't have this and you don't have that. Are you gonna build it out of rubble? No. Focus on what God has given you and use the tools he gives you. He will do it through you. Verse 3 continues, now we have Tobiah, right? We have the little punk, right? He's, he's coming out, he's like hiding behind Sanballat. All of a sudden he gets a little courage. He jumps out in verse 3 and he says, now, now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, whatever they build, even if a fox goes on it, he will break down their stone wall, right? Then he jumps back in and hides behind him again. Now this is like the greatest insult because it's meant to cause fear in the hearts of the Jews. Why? I don't know if you've seen a fox, not an incredibly fearsome animal. <laughs> like when, when I see a fox, I, I, the response is not, I need to run away because I'm afraid. It's like, oh, how cute. Come here, little fox. And what's he saying? He's saying, you guys are building this wall, and if a fox that's just running around looking for a mouse jumps on top of your wall, the whole thing's going to crumble. So what are you gonna do when all your enemies with all their armies and all their weapons come against your feeble, broken down, weak wall? Oh yeah, it, it's, makes, it causes fear. But you know what I think about fear? I think a great acronym for fear is false evidence appearing real. That's what fear is. False evidence appearing real. It's one of the enemy's greatest tools. It's when he lies to you, he shows you things, he makes you feel afraid of things. But in reality, those things are small compared to what God is able to accomplish. And so they want to incite fear. So, how do they respond to this? What does Nehemiah do when he's intimidated by the enemy and he's mocked and he's jeered and all the people are now trembling and afraid? Verse 4 and 5 tell us Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. Here's what they didn't do and what they did do they did not, you know, tuck tail and run. They did not say, oh, the enemy's right. We just better stop. Let's just go back to Babylon. They didn't give up. What they did is they prayed. And when you are insulted by the enemy, when you are intimidated by the enemy, when you are afraid, don't take it personally, take it prayerfully. Get on your knees. I'm I'm not joking. I'm not saying this figuratively. I'm saying, go to your bedroom. Go by yourself. Get on your knees before the God who created heavens and the earth and who loves you with an everlasting love and who gave his son for your salvation and redemption and life. And get on your knees and say, God, I'm afraid. God, I don't feel like I'm enough. God, I keep hearing these voices from people and from circumstances that are trying to intimidate me to stop serving you and to stop being engaged with you. God, I'm afraid, but I'm turning to you. I'm gonna ask you for your help. Destroy my enemies, God. (laughs) And help me have courage. It's been said that the Christian army is the only army that marches on their knees. I love that statement. We march in prayer. It's what the church did in Acts chapter four when they were threatened and persecuted. They all got together and they prayed, now Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. So prayer is the response we need. And then notice what they do. They pray and instead of listening to the enemy's tactics and, and intimidation, verse six tells us, so we built the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had a mind to work. They put the enemy in the rearview mirror. They looked ahead to what God asked them to do, and they did it. And it got halfway done. And here's the thing about halfways. That's another thing I'm really bad at. I love to start projects, and then when I get about halfway done... If I run into a problem, it's like, eh, maybe I'll just do that later. (laughs) Halfway point is another point the enemy likes to attack. We think everything's going great, and okay, we we resisted the enemy. We won the battle. Guess what? He's not interested in giving up. He's going to keep going. So what does he try to do now? He tries to infiltrate and cause confusion among the people of Israel. Look at verse 7. We find the infiltration of the enemy. We have his intimidation. Now we have his infiltration. Verse 7. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites. So the, the list of enemies is growing. They heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were being, beginning to be closed. That they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem And create confusion. Notice, well, we can't intimidate them, we can't keep, we can't make them afraid. So what if we start to make them all confused? What if we get inside, and we start spreading little lies, and then they start telling each other those little lies, and pretty soon they're all confused and they're all afraid, and all we had to do was just go in and plant a lie. It's a good tactic. And here is what, exactly what they do. They try to confuse everyone. And in verse nine, Nehemiah again responds in prayer. It says, nevertheless, we made our prayer to God and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. He says, not only are we gonna pray, but we're all also gonna watch. We're gonna pray, we're gonna watch. We're gonna pray, we're gonna watch. Anyone else... Remember where prayer and watching comes in? Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 26, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch, pray. Get on your knees and then how is the enemy trying to get in? What's he trying to do? How's he trying to tempt me? Be aware of that. That is the only way you're gonna defeat the enemy is that you're aware that he's trying to get at you. Watch and pray. And in verse 10, the enemy has a little victory. Someone's not watching. Someone's not praying. And in verse 10, look what happens. Then Judah said, who's Judah? Judah is one of the 12 sons. Jacob, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So the tribe of Judah, the largest, most influential tribe, what happens? Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing. And there's so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversary said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us 10 times from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Do You guys see this? The enemy was successful in planting a lie within the people. Within the camp. Pretty soon. So the enemy comes and they're like, Hey, you know, so and so. They're just like, oh, just don't hang out with them. They're not cool. And and you know, that night of worship, like let's go, let's go hang out. Let's forget forget that. And you know, it's like, ah, oh, this church is so boring, isn't it? Like this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, and I just don't like this shirt, and I just don't like these people, and And all of a sudden, you know what, the enemy can just sit back, like, all right, movie time, like, he gets his popcorn out, and he gets his snacks, and he's just like, they're going to just destroy each other, they're going to all make each other afraid, we don't have to do anything, because they're all getting discouraged, and they're all getting frustrated, and they're all complaining, that's exactly what happens, and you guys, it's exactly what Satan does to us, he says, if I can't scare you, if you're going to be courageous and you're going to be bold and I'm not going to give in to your lies, I'll just try to come inside. I'll try to come into your little group of friends. And I'll make this person jealous about that person. And I'll make this person misunderstand that person, what they said, and start to assume things about what they think about me and how they feel, and how I feel about them. And all of a sudden, the work of God is slowing down. It's consistent because grumbling is contagious. Fear spreads like wildfire within a church, within a group of Christians. So what does Nehemiah do now? Verse 13, and we're almost done. Therefore, because all this was happening, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings And I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Here is the key. First, she says, okay, you guys stop complaining Stop thinking about how we can't do this. Stop complaining and arguing. And let's let's guard against the enemy. Get at the walls. Get at the foundations. Get at the openings. And there's a whole message I could do on that, but I don't have time. Get over there. Okay, now we're going to give a pep talk. What's at stake? What's the cost? If we give in to the enemy, the enemy is going to destroy our sons, our daughters, our homes, our families. Don't forget what you're fighting for. In other words, he's saying, don't forget what you're fighting for. Even if you lose, even if the odds are against you, if you don't fight, the consequences are devastating. And I want to, I don't know how many of you guys are with me still, but I want to tell you something. I think if you remember this for the rest of your Christian life, you'd be well to remember it. If you're serving Jesus, it's something worth fighting for. There are people and causes that are worth giving your life for. We live in a day and age that will tell you the only thing worth giving your life for is yourself, and that is a lie. In fact, the day that you can be freed up to give yourself away to something bigger than you for the sake of someone or something that God is doing, that is where you will find fulfillment. That is where you will find purpose, is when you can say, you know what, I can give up my life to find it. I can lose my life, and there are things worth fighting for he says, remember that. And then he says, to top it all off, and here's how you're going to do it. He says, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. You see, rem- the most effective weapon against fear is remembrance. When I'm afraid... I don't know what's gonna happen in this relationship. I don't know what's gonna happen with my family. I don't know what's gonna happen with my parents' divorce. I don't know if I, I don't know, I kind of wanna get involved in ministry, but I don't know, I'm kind of afraid of people. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. You know You know what the Bible tells us to do? Remember the Lord. Raise your hand if God has done something, one thing in your life in the past, raise your hand. That you can look and say, I remember when God did that. It's probably like the day that God saved you forgave you of your sins, he spoke to your heart, he used you, he helped you overcome that difficult thing. Okay, you can put your hands down. The best thing to do when you're afraid of the future is to look behind you and remember what God did for you back then. Because you know what that says? Just like God did for me back then, God will do for me as I move forward. This fear is a lie. And he says, remember the Lord great and mighty. The rest of the chapter is awesome, but we don't have time, so I'm going to have to leave it for for Joel to pick up next week or whenever he decides to do that. But here's what I'll leave you with today. Remember that you're in a battle, and the battle is God has a purpose and a plan for your life that's going to affect and touch eternity, that's going to change people's lives, that's going to come against his progression, his kingdom of darkness Uh, the, the enemy's kingdom of darkness. And God has that plan for your life. You're like, not me, maybe that. No, you, you specifically. And you have an enemy and you have demons in the spiritual realm who wanna do everything you can, they can to desensitize you to what God wants you to do, distract you, discourage you, cause you to make, make yourself think, I'm not, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. I'm not this or I'm not that to bring up all your insecurities. And he will go after you to intimidate you and to infiltrate among your ranks. And here's what you do. You watch, you pray, you fight, you build, you get back up and you keep trusting the Lord. Do that every day of your life. And you will see God do some pretty radical things through you. So let me pray for you guys. Lord, thank you for the time we have together today and for your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you for these examples that we can take and that become very real and personal to us when we're struggling. When we're going through the battles of this life. That we know you have overcome. That you will cause us to succeed and have victory As we cling to you, as we trust in you, as we block out the lies of Satan and we only allow ourselves to receive the truth of God, I pray for these young men, women, these students who are growing up to do awesome and mighty things for you. I pray you burn a passion and fire in their heart for you. I pray that they would not be afraid or intimidated. As you told Joshua, do not be afraid or dismayed for the Lord is. Your God is with you wherever you go. And so be strong and be of good courage, you guys. And may may the Lord bless and keep you. And Lord, we just pray for your, your strength and for your spirit to fill us. We pray that you would take every part of us, Lord. That you would cause us to rejoice in you. That we would accept who we are in Christ. And Lord, we will give you all the praise. We love you. We pray that you go before us this week. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen, amen.